former Uber CSO charged with covering up 2016 data breach, and is the US election system more resilient now than four years ago? These stories and more in this week's ISMG's Security Report. No doubt you've heard that Uber's former chief security officer, Joseph Sullivan, has been charged with the obstruction of justice for allegedly covering up the 2016 hack attack that compromised sensitive data for 57 million Uber passengers and drivers. Will the case against Sullivan succeed? Well, ISMG's executive editor for Data Breach Today and European news coverage, Matthew Schwartz, delves deeper into the story. The U.S. Department of Justice has filed charges against Joe Sullivan, the former chief security officer of Uber, alleging that he paid hush money to cover up a massive 2016 data breach. Sullivan previously served as Facebook's CSO, and he's now chief security officer of Cloudflare. The case has prompted questions from many in the cybersecurity community, not least because a data breach didn't just result in one of their own being fired, but ending up facing criminal charges. In Sullivan's case, the charges stem from an incident in 2016 in which two men were able to obtain information on 57 million Uber users and riders via a backup stored on Amazon Web Services using credentials they'd found in code uploaded by Uber to GitHub. Legal experts say there is no federal law involving data breaches that applies to this case. Instead, the charges hinge on Uber having been providing information to the Federal Trade Commission about a 2014 hack at the time that the 2016 breach came to light. U.S. Attorney David Anderson announced the charges at a press conference last week in San Francisco. Instead of promptly revealing the 2016 hack, Sullivan covered it up by having Uber pay the hackers $100,000 in hush money. Sullivan is charged with obstruction of justice and misprison of a felony and faces a maximum statutory penalty of eight years imprisonment. Prosecutors have accused Sullivan of failing to inform Uber's general counsel about the full particulars of the data exposure, and they say the FTC should have been notified. Part of the charges center on Uber, having paid $100,000 to two men in return for details about how they'd obtained the data, as well as a signed promise that they had deleted it. This was done via Uber's bug bounty program with HackerOne. A bug bounty can be a legitimate means of compensating a so-called white hat hacker who has discovered a security breach but has not exploited it. It is not a bug bounty to pay a hacker who has taken your data and is threatening to expose it. Subsequently, the two men, one a Florida resident, the other based in Canada, pleaded guilty to hacking Uber and others. They're due to be sentenced later this year. So will the case against Sullivan succeed? His spokesman, Bradford Williams, says the case has no merit and notes that the two men were likely only identified thanks to the efforts of Sullivan and his team. He adds that Uber's legal department, and not Sullivan or his group, was responsible for deciding whether and to whom the matter should be disclosed. Sullivan, meanwhile, has previously stated that the payment was in no way intended to cover up what had happened. And as the criminal complaint makes clear, Sullivan was far from the only employee to know the particulars of this particular incident. 
Obviously, one of the things about the Uber case is that the scope of the number of people who knew and participated in the data breach response is much broader than Joe Sullivan. That's Mark Rash of counsel to the law firm of Corman, Jackson, and Krantz. Clearly, the Uber CEO participated in the response, the old CEO. Clearly, the general counsel participated, and a bunch of other people. And so the question is, what was it that Joe Sullivan did that's unique that singled him out for criminal prosecution? Rash is an attorney who specializes in data breaches, and he says the use of misprison, or actually covering up a crime, is extremely unusual in the cybersecurity sphere. Just to calm the fears of other CISOs and CISOs and CSOs and the like, merely not reporting a breach or an attack or a DDoS or a ransomware is not misprison of a felony. There are no criminal penalties, at least not currently, for failure to report a data breach. And there are few, if any, legal requirements of reporting other cyber crimes that are not data breaches. Now, unfortunately, there's language in the complaint that talk about things like Sullivan telling people, uh, let's keep this close to the vest, nobody else talk about this stuff, things like that, which we people in the security and incident response business call Tuesday. I mean, that is standard fare in an incident response. And in fact, almost always, those directions come from the general counsel. And the general counsel says, everything gets reported to me so that it can be considered privileged so that we cannot report it. Obviously, this is just a taste of some of the legal matters underpinning the government's case against Joe Sullivan. Will these charges hold? Might Sullivan even do jail time? Of course, at least for now, it's too soon to say. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. This week, ISMG hosted a virtual summit dedicated to government security. Among speakers was Christopher Krebs, Director of CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency for the Department of Homeland Security. With an impending November U.S. election, there was no better person to ask about the current state of election cybersecurity. Here is Christopher in conversation with our VP of Editorial, Tom Field, in response to Tom's question, what has been done since 2016 to enhance the election infrastructure resiliency? Yeah, I think this is really the key question, and this is what's going to make the biggest difference come 2020 and beyond. Paper records gives the opportunity to conduct an audit. An audit is a crucial resiliency tool. So if you have a disruption, if you have some sort of anomaly, again, you can go back and check your records. We're also seeing, as I talked about the improvements in voter registration database, there are resilience measures in place there backing up systems more regularly on, a, on a, in some cases, a daily basis. We all know how prevalent ransomware is right now. And the ability to build back up from a trusted point of reference in the past is, is critical for, vote, for voter registration files. We're also seeing analog. Analogs, you know, whether it's a paper ballot or a, a paper analog poll book, the ability for a precinct a actual voting location, if they lose some sort of connectivity, if they lose a device, that they can go back and make sure that you as the voter can check in and then can get your ballot cast and then count it as cast. So it's, it's measures like that. It's in some sense back to the future, almost, 
So we're, we're introducing analog measures, we're introducing paper, at the same time we're doubling down on our technology measures that any organization would take uh, to ensure that their networks are resilient. Chris, in July you released the Cyber Incident Detection and Notification Planning Guide for Election Security. What resources does this include? So we've, we've actually re released a number of guides over the last several months, in part due to COVID, and, and what really just to, to kind of spin it all back around to where we were, uh, where I think we last saw each other in person was our, out at the RSA conference. That's when it hit us all, I think, that COVID was going to be a disruptive event for elections. It was going to be truly a game changer. So we immediately brought in the HHS and the Centers for Disease Control, uh, Control and Prevention and, and started building guidance for election officials so that they could implement certain activities to ensure the safety of voters coming through the primaries. And we're seeing those measures continue to take place and roll out. So we've issued, in addition to the detection, uh, incident detection resource, and it just gives you tips on how to report an incident. We've also rolled out a uh, vulnerability detection guide, reporting guide, in, in helping state and locals develop a vulnerability disclosure program. And, and just saw uh, earlier this week that the state of Ohio, under Secretary LaRose, has established a statewide election-related vulnerability disclosure program with six steps on how you do it. Uh, we've also issued a uh, innovation in, in new practices guide, and that highlights things like vote centers, ticketing and registration centers for how uh, a voting locale uh, location can uh, ensure that, that the vote still happens, the voters can come through in the seamless process. This other guidance. So, so we're, we're really excited about how, again, this community of practices come together, has tackled this challenge of COVID to make sure that we can do our civic duties and get out and vote. And the last thing I think is that is, this also really demonstrates more than anything, something that I've always firmly believed is that election officials, secretaries of state, state election directors are natural risk managers. This is just, whether it's cybersecurity, whether it's COVID, they have to deal with adversity on a regular basis. And in fact, a couple, a couple years ago, a, a hurricane pretty much wiped out a county down in Florida, all their bricks and mortar of their election officials' offices. And it was a month and a half or so before an election, they were able to pop back up a system that allowed their voters to get out there and vote. The vote must go on. Now, the growing use of biometric technology is raising concerns about privacy as well as identity theft and fraud, a view emphasized by health information and privacy attorney Paul Hales, who is principal at Hales Law Group. He recently spoke with Marianne Kolbasuk-McGee, executive editor of ISMG's healthcare infosecurity site, about recent legal and legislative developments in this space. Here he is outlining steps that healthcare organizations and patients should consider to help prevent medical ID theft and fraud. Well, what we see on the internet is that personal protected health information is all over. And some of it, much of it is actually posted by patients without realizing the dangers that they're putting themselves in with respect to medical identity theft. So they may post stories about their health care on their own Facebook page. They may review their health care provider on these medical review sites. But patients aren't restrained by any law like HIPAA. They're not covered entities. They've got the right to share their stories. Story. What they don't realize is that when they put their name out there and the name of their provider, they're inviting a medical identity thief, a criminal, 
to contact them. And they have social engineering scripts where they, the criminals are able to get the information that's necessary to steal medical identity. As far as providers go, providers must have an authorization before they post any information about a patient on the internet, whether it's a picture or a video, or a response to a review, or create a Facebook page for their organization, then then allow patients to post on that Facebook page without first obtaining an authorization. One of the things that providers should realize is that Facebook and other social media organizations have contracts. In order to use the Facebook services, you have to agree to their terms and conditions. And of course, those are written by the social media companies to protect the social media companies. So also Facebook which continues to change its terms and conditions and community standards, has made it easier to find how to restrict and review using privacy uh, settings any information that's posted by a patient on your Facebook site. So that is uh, something that the providers really need to be careful of. And I can see all over, you know, just by going to a healthcare provider's site, Facebook postings that likely don't have the appropriate authorization. That's it from ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time. <laughs>